Hola, hola. You're listening to Cerveza Escucha, Seen and Heard, a language justice podcast for everyone. I'm Ada. And I'm Andrea. We're here at the studios of 103.3 Asheville FM in Asheville, North Carolina, with our compas Manuel and Leonel. This is the last episode of the season. And what better way to close out than by answering you all's questions? And we're going to be answering listeners' questions with our friend, compañero, mentor, and dearly beloved Roberto Tijerina. Hey, Roberto. Hola. Hey, y'all. <laughs> we wanted to start today just sharing a little bit about Roberto. How did you come into this work? Because I could go on and on about what it has meant for me to come into this work through you. Mm-hmm. As someone who, for whatever reason, spent a whole heck of a lot of time with me when I was a much younger person, uh, all the support that you gave me coming in, and how that really brought me to this moment. Um, but how did you come into this work? How did you come to be a language justice worker? Yeah, you know, I, I think my story is uh, pretty common in like being a child of an immigrant family and being the first uh, person in my family that was born in this country. So I remember like at, uh, being like eight or nine. Y me decían, vayase con su abuela, vayase con el tío, vayase con el vecino. So like being lent out to family and friends mm-hmm. and neighbors to go do interpreting and not knowing, you know, not knowing what it was that I was doing, but like trying to like help them um, get what it wanted. So grew up doing that. Um, and then you know, there's a piece of it that was also just part of my religious upbringing that had a lot to do with like trying to spread the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I think that's really where like the language base came from. Um, and then in my 20s, I took an elective for a sign language class and I fell in love with sign language. And through that, I took like a formal course of study on interpreting. And that's where I learned like the rules of interpreting um, mm-hmm. and, you know, like where you're supposed to stand, what you're supposed to do and not do. Um, and at that time, it was just rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in 2005, probably the most important thing that's happened to me was an invitation to go work at the Highlander Center um, in Newmarket, Tennessee, which is, uh, I think, maybe 85 years old Mm -hmm. now, a center of popular education. And through their being able to marry, like, interpreting with a political practice that was rooted in people's Mm -hmm. liberation. So that's the short story. That's how we meet, um, is, is at Highlander. And the first time, yeah. Um, and so I just want to name like your work there and specifically the interpreting for social justice training that has been such an entry point for so many of us who identify with the language justice movement. I think that's been a place like you and that workshop are a place where Golden and I and so many other people across this, uh, across the South, across the country have like come into this work. And Tantas, I want to, I want to name, name that. Um, I want to name because I think uh-huh. it's important. Like, I think a lot of this work germinated at Highlander, but the ground was fertile, not just because of the right. political moment with immigration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, I have to name like Alice Johnson and Andrea mm-hmm. Arias mm-hmm. and like folks that had already started seeding that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, entonces, listeners, we're going to jump into listener letters. Okay. Listeners want to know. We got letters from Asheville, DC, Boston. So inquiring minds want to know um, when and where was the first time that you heard the term language justice? Okay, um, well, I think the, the first time that I said language justice, um, I think was somewhere around 
I don't know, it was maybe 2007 or so in preparation for the U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta, Georgia. And at that time, the work had been building for a little bit and in trying to push like why we needed interpretation and containers for language mm-hmm. at the social forum, having a conversation and saying language should be a column of movement, just like racial justice and economic justice and gender justice. There should be like language justice mm-hmm. because of all these reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Can I ask a, a follow up question, Roberto, because we've been on this kind of like quest of what is language justice? Could you share because you're saying the first time that you said language justice, but to you, what is language justice? Whoa, okay. So <laughs> La pregunta del millón. I, I, I would, if I had to like distill it um, for, for brevity, I would say the two basic things are like people's just fundamental universal right to express themselves, to, to express themselves and be understood and understand what's being said to them mm-hmm. in the languages that are their languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then also creating the containers through language and interpreting for people to be able to exercise their autonomy and self-determination. Thank you. Um, so our next, our next listener letter, uh, our question is, um, do you still practice your interpreting skills? If so, how? Uh, for me, I practice my interpreting skills by interpreting. Um, and I think that every time I have a, a gig, um, whether that's recently been like a lot of like remote um, simultaneous interpreting on conference calls or it's about a meeting around a new topic, I feel like I practice my skills live at the at the gigs and the preparation uh, ahead of the gigs and kind of um, trying to think about like what did I learn for the next time after the gigs. Entonces experiential have experiential mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. Más decir cómo yes i would say that um i don't do as much of the day-to-day interpreting as i used to years ago um so i don't have that same opportunity so my practice is you know maybe i do three or four kind of like big uh you know get big invitations mm-hmm. so definitely in preparation to that because mm-hmm. the because the muscles are cold i'm like i look at the <laughs> vocabulary um, mm-hmm. and I just tried to, to get my para que mi lengua se vaya acostumbrado mm-hmm. so that my tongue like gets used to like saying the words in the mm-hmm. vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. A listener in Boston wants to know, how do we push through the English-Spanish dominance of language justice work? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have some thoughts on that. Um, for me, there's a couple different pieces to it. Um, For me, when I think about now, if you had asked me a year ago this question, I would have had a very different answer. But now for me, because the way I understand language justice is much uh, broader than interpretation, for me in my practice, I've found ways to kind of push through that English-Spanish dominance by supporting other kinds of language justice work. So supporting where language and culture intersect where revitalization, revitalization of language is happening or is possible, um, working with young people around holding on to their Spanish. So I've found other ways beyond interpretation that I think opens up more possibilities to work with many other communities around language justice. Um, but with that said, I very much hear that challenge of in terms of how are we creating multilingual spaces that push beyond the English-Spanish dominance 
For me, because first I'm an organizer and popular educator, and then that's why I became an interpreter and language justice worker. It's about expanding our movement work, whether that's in our on the streets we live on, in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our region, to not be mm-hmm. such an English-Spanish dominant mm-hmm. uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Because then the creation of the multilingual spaces happens to support the communities that are coming together. And so for me, it's like taking it out of that theoretical how language should be larger than English-Spanish and saying, what's the work that we're doing in the places that we live, in the places that we organize, and then training up interpreters to create the spaces to allow for those relationships. Yeah, and I think that I would agree. I, I, so I, I completely agree with that, like that the change happens in our communities and how we bring different communities together. I do think that there is a part of it that, that is also like where movement needs to be pushed because mm-hmm. um, the work happens in communities. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that like, you know, if you use the terminology, the grass tops mm-hmm. just be- because of their size or impact, like they have an impact in the direction mm-hmm. oftentimes. Not just the movement um, and political direction, but also where resources are. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that there's a part of it. I mean, I think for better or for worse, in in the U.S. American narrative about mm-hmm. immigration, it mm-hmm. defaults to Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes to Mexico because we share a border. Um, and I think that there's work on like the movement grass tops level to really push beyond the immigration conversation. So insofar as language justice connects with immigration work, uh-huh. which is mm-hmm. I do a lot of my work, mm-hmm. like. To, to just be more rigorous in, in expanding the immigration conversation and what that means. Mm-hmm. And if I could just say here that around the podcast, we made a specific decision to tape this podcast in English, um, even though we're way funnier. Everybody, we're, I think we're like funnier and more relaxed in Spanish. We wanted to do this in English because we thought this is a way that we can push through that Spanish dominance of language justice work and that more people um, that speak English and other languages can 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 be a part of, of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next listener question. Easy, sí, sí, muy bueno. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm nervous each question. I'm like, okay, okay. Okay, the next question um, is, how are we taking care of ourselves and being responsible when training new interpreters? Um, particularly around the secondary trauma um, that interpreters carry from doing community interpretation. Um, uh, Everyone's like, uh. you can't see us, but we're pointing right now. (laughs) Um, This is my jam. I'm like, where's Monse? (laughs) This is me and Monse's jam. Um, I am a big believer in in this, and I was talking to Lionel about it yesterday. I think that as interpreters, we put ourselves in these situations, or we are put in these situations where we would nor- not normally be, and that might be at a detention center in Brownsville, that might be at a doctor's appointment, that might be in court, that might be in, you know, freaking ICE um, Raid, you know, we we are put in all of these places, and I do believe that somehow, as like, um, you know, I've said it before, but like the 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 messages come into us, they pass through us, and I do believe that there are impacts in that, and I think that for those of us who have been interpreting for a long time, um, you know, there's just this like sensitivity, um, and I think that. 
there are some things that I've been trying to to put into practice. Um, and it's really around like just as I put time and effort into the preparation um, by preparing vocabulary, getting there early, setting up the equipment, testing the batteries, I put the same amount of preparation or I've been trying to put the same amount of preparation in making sure that I have space ahead of time. Sometimes just freaking having 10 minutes of silence before I drive off to the gig, taking my um, rose and Tulsi spray, wearing a rose quartz, walking afterwards, like just trying for that energy to not stay within my body because I've seen the impacts. I've seen the impacts of that. So that's, that's for me. And I want to add something. I think you know, Ad and I had had this conversation now for some time about, you know, what is it like to kind of carry all of that around with you? Um, but I had recently had an experience with one of my children who does a lot of interpreting at school with the newcomer students. And they had a scare because someone was mm -hmm. shooting near campus. Mm -hmm. And they ended up interpreting for a student about, we need to get in the closet. We need to hide. This is what's happening. Um, and I saw just really real mm -hmm. firsthand the impact that that had on my child. And also, not just the caring of the message, but that sense of responsibility. And did I do a good job mm -hmm. for my classmate to understand? Did they feel safe? For mm -hmm. me, it really made this point real, where for a long time I'd had conversations and I could feel it. I, uh -huh. I can feel stress in my own body, but there was something about seeing it in my child as a young person who wasn't prepared, who's not obviously trained as an interpreter because they're a child, um, that really brought this home for me about it is real. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that panic, that whatever the feeling is that you're carrying, it's it's real. And how do we support each other and how do we support young bilingual people that are acting as interpreters so that they don't get used to just having that feeling in their body and that becomes part of the normal experience of being bilingual? And something that I recently uh, heard on this on this other podcast, que se llama Troublesome Terps, they were talking about how, and I haven't like fleshed this out, but they were talking about, you know, so much of the interpreter is like being invisible, like I'm not really here. I'm not going to introduce myself when we introduce ourselves. I'm just the interpreter. So we invisibilize ourselves or we try to invisibilize ourselves. And then we're like, oh, why am I being invisibilized? And so <laughs> or why is nobody recognizing like at the end of this meeting, like I'm freaking crying at the end of this meeting, like I'm freaking triggered. And so I was just like, huh, it made me rethink like I get why we're like, no, I'm just the interpreter. Like I'm just here to pass the message. But is that contributing to um, part of this like secondary secondary trauma? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I basically think two quick things. One is that, uh, you know, to be multilingual or speak that, because I'm just thinking about the example that Andrea said, and I'm like, to be the little kid who didn't understand yeah. English or what was happening yeah. around them. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think it doesn't matter how people acquire second language, but regardless of that, to be able to, for folks that do that is both like such a gift and a responsibility mm -hmm. and all the things that come with that. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was talking, it made me think of things I've been thinking about lately that have shifted in my thinking mm -hmm. around interpreting from when I started mm -hmm. 10, 12 years ago. And I was thinking mm -hmm. like, um, offer that as a topic for maybe season two. Um, <laughs> Y'all should maybe like tackle a thing of like, how has your thinking around interpreting? Yes. Yeah. It's just this change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Roberto, next question. 
Uh, a listener in DC <laughs> wants to know how do you say power verse in Spanish? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, that was a loud laugh even for me. My husband, my husband just closed the office door. Um, I guess I, if I had to interpret it on the fly at the bar, I might say super inter. <laughs> so I'm super inter. Thank you, DC listeners. <laughs> Okay, next question. <laughs> any tips, advice, practices, tools that local groups can take on to strengthen language justice in small towns? So, I, 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 to me, I think that that is rooted in what you said a while ago, Andrea, around like doing the work on the ground, um, mm. especially like in you know, like in rural communities mm -hmm. where folks are interconnected, and you know. It's like whether or not whatever people's like personal or political relationships are, like people are interconnected in mm -hmm. like, you know, survival and moving forward. So a lot of that is doing that work at that local level, like what is the need around interpreting? Mm -hmm. um, what are the resources that are available to meet those needs? Um, what are the resources that maybe need to be brought in from somewhere else? Um, and who are the as and as with anything, like who are the folks that are already leading in and kind of showing natural leadership in that? And can those skills, you know, and that leadership continue to be developed? Um, but, and most importantly, like, how do you get buy-in from community, mm -hmm. especially in, in rural towns? Yeah. Like, that, that this, this is worth, worth investing in. Mm -hmm. yeah. In my experience, language justice as it relates to creating multilingual spaces where there is interpretation, it follows or accompanies the work that we're doing in the places that we live. Yeah. So, like, for me, be outside of being a language justice worker, mm -hmm. One of the things that I spend a lot of my time doing is working with um, people like myself that live in mobile home parks on how can we organize as residents to have resident-owned mobile home park cooperatives. And so that involves a lot of door-to-door, uh, -door, getting to know people, building relationships, and then people believing enough in that they need their neighbor um, and that they can trust their neighbor And that often happens through interpreters. So I think it's about figuring out what is it that's meaningful to the people that live around where you live um, and then allowing interpretation and language justice to support those mm -hmm. meaningful connections mm -hmm. that then create a change, mm -hmm. real change in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it has to be like practical, mm -hmm. tangible, mm -hmm. um, and then having, like you just said, having the language justice support that. That's the best way that it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. All right, so what are um, some of our visions for language justice, um, especially in these next uh, couple of years? Last question, um, what are your visions for language justice? How has it been and can it be integrated into our movements across the country, especially in these next few years? Um, wow, that is also one that lends itself to mm -hmm. a lot. I, I, Just one thing that comes to mind is like, you know, oftentimes when we talk about language justice, uh, because it's executed in the role of the interpreter, we're thinking about like power dynamics vertically, mm. like how creating spaces for folks to engage with power. Mm. Um, but I like, and what has always made me excited is what, what, what does it look like to build horizontally? 
like, you know, what does it look like to build horizontally, just, you know, whether it's in the immigration rights sector, to like to actually build, put in the resources and the containers for folks to be, can you imagine a people's movement assemblies of, of immigrants that are like living mm-hmm. in the U.S. right yeah. now to yeah. be able to talk, talk to each other and tell their stories, engage in strategy. Um, and then, you know, connect that to other sectors as well. It's just what, you know, like, so those things right there and and how do we do that? Not just in the face of like constant attack, but also just like the lack of resources, Uh um, because, you know, equipment is expensive. And so, and how do we grow our own interpreters Mm -hmm. in our communities to be able to, to do this work? Right. 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 Just because I know this can be edited. I have a question that I'm not exactly sure, but I, I just need to take a second to think because it's related to what you said earlier about like, how do you see things differently? Mm-hmm. So with what you just said in looking forward to these next few years, Roberto, about what is possible um, with language justice and integrating it more deeply into movement. What do you see that's possible now that uh, wouldn't have been possible 10 or 15 years ago? Because we're years into this work. Mm-hmm. And so what's possible now? What do you see that's newly possible? So I think that one thing that has shifted, and I think for folks, yourselves included, that have been doing like this work for a while, I don't know if like you remember like how hard it was to have conversations with organizations um, around like why so many things, why this was important, why it was important to resource, even like, hey, can we have 30 seconds just to explain how like this process is going to work? And I feel that like just because of the work of so many people in movement around this, like that has shifted. So that's the new starting point, like that folks kind of get like folks aren't fighting, like, why do we need interpreters anymore? Like that is understood. So then so I I think that what that does then is open the possibility for um, now now that we understand the need for it, how do we create paths of leadership, which Mm -hmm. is something that we're seeing more and more like. So, you know, so what if we're working under a C3 structure? Does the executive director necessarily have to speak English to mm. be the executive director? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they're the person most impacted and if they're like the most badass organizer in the organization, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. can we build a structure mm-hmm. for them to have leadership? Mm-hmm. Right. And, we'll and I think that that's possible because of the baseline shift, like just creating like more paths for leadership and be. And, and taking direction from folks that are just like most impacted, mm-hmm. you know, without using like language or language barriers mm-hmm. as an excuse. Mm-hmm. And in places where it's like happening, it's just like a beautiful thing to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for us, our vision of language justice in the next couple of years and actually the next couple of months <laughs> kind of is represented <laughs> in the next couple of months um, for a long time. Um, the Center for Participatory Change, and I think our work um, kind of focused on interpreters, interpreter training, interpretation equipment, um, bringing up interpreters, practice sessions, like it, it it stayed in that transactional kind of place, which supports the movements, which supports the organizing, which supports the changing our communities. And we've talked on the podcast about this language justice tour that really helped us change like what is possible in the language justice movement. And so we're super excited for the fall where we'll be having these language justice programming, um, starting with an intercambio or exchange uh, for folks to teach each other English and Spanish, specifically uh, Latino folks and 
uh, black folk to uh, teach each other language like directly to change the way, especially again in small towns, in rural communities where it's predominantly white. Uh, how can we change the way that we relate to each other and also scale up on on our language skills? So that's one of the things that we're super excited about. And I want to say something about um, kind of how part of the vision for that was born was in conversation mm -hmm. with people who were talking about how they learned English. And yeah. overwhelmingly, everyone in the room was saying, I learned it from a white woman at the mm -hmm. community college mm -hmm. or at the whatever Church, nonprofit. And realizing, one, kind of what dynamic that sets up, like who teaches, who has something to teach in a small town, what, uh, like what accents you understand, mm -hmm. what ways of speaking you understand, mm -hmm. and how that was creating these divides in ways that we had never, ever imagined. And so we're really excited to see that space be created. Um, and the other project or another project that we're working on for the fall, um, we're calling like Serpent's Tongue, uh, uh, based on the Gloria Saldua quote. Um, and this is Spanish for uh, native Spanish speakers. So, for example, Roberto and I, <laughs> where you learned Spanish growing up at home, pero a la hora de la hora, when you have to write an email or you have to talk to your family member in Mexico and they make fun of you and then whoo, you, um, <laughs> you, just, whoo, you just wither, <laughs> you just wither down. Um, and so we want to do like a four to five week uh, Spanish course, um, you know, reading, writing, uh, but doing that in a popular education space, but doing that in a place that recognizes that we're enough, right? Our Spanish is enough, our English is enough, our broken pocho Spanglish is enough, um, and kind of like learning our language in a in a in a place where we can like also heal at the same at the same time. So that's the second little upcoming project that we have. Um, and then the third is a gathering of people that are working on language revitalization. So one of, um, the, for me, the most beautiful parts of the Language Justice Tour was getting uh, to listen to people talk about what it has meant to uh, preserve, even if it's just in their mind and spirit or within the four walls of their home, um, original people's languages, indigenous languages, um, and that that crust that cr covers our region everywhere from mm -hmm. further out west Cherokee communities mm -hmm. who are doing language preservation work to immigrant communities that are holding on to languages other than Spanish to communities who are losing the language mm -hmm. and are starting to try to revitalize. And so we will hold a gathering in the fall that brings together a community members that are, want to connect to each other to share these ideas and methods that are working for them or that could work for them to make these initiatives um, even stronger and more interconnected. Wow, so mad, just like you were saying, like, <laughs> mad, mad props to y'all. First of all, yeah, no, that, that, that whole thing about like folks of, you know, black folks and folks of color, mm -hmm. like learning without like having to go through whiteness, mm -hmm. that is so mm -hmm. real. I mean, mm -hmm. secondly, that Serpentine, of course it's based on Saldua <laughs> and not as I was thinking, were you think were you gonna say Slytherin House? Harry Potter? <laughs> uh, so much, much deeper. Uh, but it just yeah, mad props to, to y'all in Western North Carolina because yeah, it's such such good work. Yeah, thank you for that work.
So we have some other questions that we're not going to be able to get to on the podcast, but follow us on Instagram and we'll be answering those questions on our uh, stories. Uh, so check, make sure to check that out. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, thank some folks as we get uh, to the closing part um, of this episode, um, starting with CPC, uh, the Center for Participatory Change, for just giving us the <laughs> chance to follow our crazy dreams and being like, we want to have a podcast. And and yeah, here we are. <laughs> um, so I want to I want to thank CPC for always supporting uh, our crazy ideas and giving us that opportunity. And we also want to thank um, our Compass at the Fund for Democratic Communities for their financial support of this project and for their dedication of bringing language justice into the cooperative economics movement. There are a lot of folks who helped us make these episodes. And I want to thank uh, Pam of Café con Pam, Luis Octavio of Nos Vemos en el Swap Meet, Katie Mingle and the Compass at Radio Menea for answering all my random messages about podcasts or all our random messages about podcasts. Like, how do we do this? How do we do that? <laughs> you all were so generous with your time and your advice. And we really, really appreciate that. And we want to thank Manuel and Leonel. Um, thank you so much for the endless yes. texts, calls, <laughs> home visits. Oh my gosh, how do we edit this? Thank you so, so, so much. And thank your families uh, for yes. uh, hanging in there with us. <laughs> And everyone who helped us with translations, interpretation, voiceovers, Leo, Luis, uh, Temo, Bruno, Juan, Abel, thank you so much. You can keep in contact with the Language Justice Circle of CPC. Make sure to check out our YouTube videos, our nerdy, beautiful uh, YouTube videos that Manuel helped us produce. Um, check out the Language Justice Curriculum. There's chapters on a lot of the things that we've talked about on the podcast episodes. And, you know, keep following us on Instagram, Facebook, because we have some of uh, those workshops that we were just talking about. So you want to make sure to, to stay in touch. And thank you so much, Roberto, for joining us today. Muchas gracias, compa. And thank you, ustedes. Nos vemos en las montañas. Sí. So thanks to the studios of 103.3 Asheville FM, WSFMLP in Asheville, North Carolina. You all opened up the doors and made this uh, possible. So we want to, to thank you for making this so easy. Valo Cebes Escucha on Facebook and Instagram or on Twitter at SVSE Podcast or email us at SVSE Podcast at gmail.com. And please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate, leave us a review, send us a message. On behalf of Manuel de la Luz of Mente Visual Films, Leonel Gutierrez of GBD Productions, Andrea Golden, and Ada Volkmer of the Center for Participatory Change. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Mente Visual Films and GBD Productions. Music by Combo Chimbita. Chimbita.